Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. History isn't always written by the victors. 19th century America saw a series of high-profile court cases that stripped civil rights from black Americans following the Civil War. John Marshall Harlan was the only U.S. Supreme Court justice to stand in dissent. And his blistering, passionate rebuttals inspired future justices, such as Thurgood Marshall, who said that Harlan's writings were his Bible and his blueprint as he helped tear down segregation a century later. Peter Canellis, award-winning author and managing editor at Politico, has written a riveting new biography of John Marshall Harlan. It's called The Great Dissenter. And it also includes the story of Harlan's half-brother, Robert Harlan, a formerly enslaved man who Harlan's father fully embraced his family. Robert himself became a commanding figure in American history. Peter Canellis is former editorial page editor at Boston Globe, executive editor at Politico. He's the editor of New York Times bestseller, Last Lion, The Fall and Rise of Ted Kennedy. Peter Canellis, uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Tom. Appreciate you uh, being on with us. Uh, I guess first question, uh, how did you come across this fascinating story? I think it's known in, you know, Harlan's known in legal circles, but uh, general public, not so much, which you're rectifying, of course, with the book. How did you come across the story? <laughs> well, I came across the story starting when I was in law school 30 years ago, uh, but gradually, you know, grew to learn more. There really wasn't much that was taught about John Marshall Harlan, uh, but his dissents kind of leaped out off the page, you know. Here was a man with a very different conception of justice than the people around him, and and not just in the race cases that you mentioned, but in cases that involved uh, gilded age economic issues, uh, things like the minimum wage, things like antitrust law, things like the income tax. But he had a uh, both a sort of heightened appreciation for the true intent of the Constitution, but also a sense of how judicial uh, decisions played out on the ground. So you kind of wonder over time, you know, here's this one person who got everything right at a time when all of his colleagues were saying something very different. Um, you know, what was it that made him different? What made, made him see things in a way that we now, you know, more than 100 years later, uh, believe was correct? And it's a very interesting exploration of the roots of the law and the roots of wisdom in, in judging the law. Tell us a little bit about his background. Uh, John Marshall, his, his first two names, That was that consciously by his father and mother to name him after the great uh, Supreme Court justice? Yeah, absolutely. I think his father probably had a little more influence than his mother at that time. His father was a lawyer in Kentucky and prided himself on having the largest uh, private law library in Kentucky and dreamed of having all of his sons all his white sons and his uh, go into the law and having sort of a family law firm. John Marshall was a great uh, hero to to uh, John Marshall Harlan's father for many reasons. Um, you know, one of them is that he asserted the power of the central government and the U.S. Constitution over states. And this was an era when uh, Kentucky was... Uh, you know, contending with the probability, the likelihood of a civil war coming. And everyone in Kentucky felt that their state would be the battleground. Uh, they also knew that because they were so divided between uh, being pro-slavery and anti-slavery, that, that it would sort of destroy their political fabric as well. So all these Kentuckians, such as uh, the great Henry Clay and the members of the Crittenden family and the Breckenridge family uh, and the Harlan family, you know, fought 
during the 1840s, 1850s, to try to find a compromise that would forestall the Civil War. And James Harlan came to see the sort of states' rights ideology that places like South Carolina were putting forward as, as being uh, the enemy. And John Marshall, the great chief justice who asserted judicial review and asserted the power of the federal constitution over states, you know, was a role model to him. So when when his son was born in 1833, uh, you know, he he wanted to name him after the person he considered the greatest of all Americans, and and thereby you know bestow a kind of prophecy on him that someday he would go on the Supreme Court and represent those values as well, which he did. <laughs> so, uh, so rather an amazing sort of event. Yeah, amazing. Uh, so Kentucky was one of those border states. Um, um, John Marshall Harlan fought for the Union in the Civil War. He did, and Kentucky was a border state, as you mentioned. It also, before the Civil War, had a very different character than we might associate with Kentucky today. It had a more aristocratic uh, aspect to it. It was an offshoot of Virginia. It had originally been, been sort of uncharted western territories of Virginia, and so a lot of the leading families in Kentucky kind of modeled themselves um, uh, after Virginians in terms of Virginians who aspired to national leadership. And so it was a, um, a kind of forward-looking uh, place where people sort of thought about national leadership. They considered themselves to be, uh, you know, pioneers and ahead of other states in things like education and the economy. Um, they were genteel, um, and, uh, you know, they could see those ruling families of Kentucky, leading families of Kentucky, they could see it all falling apart if there was a civil war. Um, and they were not uh, as wedded to slavery, even though the Harlan family was fairly wealthy and had house slaves, uh, they had a very mixed feeling about slavery. Uh, James Harlan was very quick to condemn anything that seemed brutal in terms of treatment of slaves, uh, and also were plainly looking to uh, find a, a long-term solution to the slavery problem, just as Henry Clay was. So at various points, they would talk about things like colonization in Africa or economic compensation of slave owners to try to solve this problem. So the atmosphere in which Harlan grew up in was one that understood that slavery was kind of embedded in the economy of some of these states, but also that it was problematic, that it was both a moral wrong, uh, especially when slaves were mistreated, um, but also that it was a, a sort of challenge to those values, that uh, those American values that uh, Harlan and his father really believed in and that Henry Clay believed in, you know, freedom, equality, uh, uh, you know, living uh, living in a democracy, you know, all of those values were challenged by slavery. And I think in time, over time, uh, John Marshall Harlan became more and more aware of the idea of slavery as being a threat to American ideals. This is a very American story, isn't it? Uh, the, the, these ideals, which are inspiring not only to Americans, but around the world, then and now, and then trying to live up to those ideals, and sometimes falling so far short, as with slavery. Yes, I think John Marshall Harlan clearly believed in the American experiment. You know, 
when he was a young man in Kentucky, there were Revolutionary War veterans around. <laughs> you know, it's very funny. Um, his grandson in later years, in the 1950s, was appointed to the Supreme Court. And the challenge on him was that he was too pro-British, he was too internationalist, because he had fought in World War II and thought of, you know, thought of the British as uh, Winston Churchill. Well, his grandfather was suspicious of the British, you know, because in the world that he grew up in, people remembered the Revolutionary War, and people in Kentucky especially remembered how the British had turned uh, Native Americans against them, had, had formed an alliance with some of the Native American tribes and led to terrible battles and uh, uh, atrocities in which one of Harlan's uncles was killed. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a very different time. But I think in Harlan's mind, uh, American democracy was truly the great hope for the world. And he believed that, uh, you know, any form of, you know, worship of a monarch, whether it was in England, whether it was in China, whether it was the Pope, whether it was in France, was a threat to American democracy. And uh, it gave him a very heightened sense of American exceptionalism. Yeah, that's the Harlan that I've been familiar with, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, the, the grandson. So that that is the grandson, oh, yeah. the man we're talking about. Yeah, the grandson. Well, this, this the Harlan that I was talking about is the uh, is the was the grandfather having the sense of American exceptionalism. But the grandson also had it, but in a different frame. Yeah, you know, he had it because he, uh, uh, you know, it was it was part of his legacy and <laughs> things. But the grandson, the grandson was actually more of an internationalist. The, the grandfather was sort of skeptical of other countries. Yeah. Yeah. The grandson had the same name, I think, right? John Marshall Harlan? Yes, he yeah. did. John yeah. Marshall Harlan II. And uh, they were just very different people. John Marshall Harlan II was a uh, corporate lawyer. He represented DuPont a lot. Uh, whereas, you know, Grandpa, uh, you know, fought in the Civil War and uh, lived on the frontier and, uh, you know, was part of these, these very sort of elemental battles about the legacy of the Civil War in terms of race and in terms of uh, economics and economic freedom uh, and taking on the Gilded Age elite. Uh, so, so, you know, Grandpa was more of a red-blooded character than his grandson, but they were, they were each men of their times, and they each strongly believed in American ideals. Uh, so back to the first uh, John Marshall Harlan. Um, this book not only tells his story, but it tells the story of his uh, half brother Robert, uh, and uh, yeah, Robert Robert Harlan uh, was a man who, in, in time, was presumed to be his half brother. I should say we do not uh, know whether he was or wasn't. We do know that there was a DNA test that was performed on some of their descendants that uh, that at the time, this was about twenty years ago, uh, actually discouraged the idea that there was a blood relationship, which was it would be a surprise to a lot of people in their time because he was. Um, uh, it was even, you know, published in black newspapers and in racing journals that they were brothers. Um, nonetheless, he was obviously, Robert Harlan was obviously a very close family member in the sense that starting when he was eight years old, he was uh, raised by John Marshall Harlan's uh, father, and he was a man of uh, mixed race who uh, was denied opportunities to go to school because of his uh, racial status. And so lived a very different life from the other kids in the family. He, um, but it was an exciting life, an adventurous life. He, for example, uh, 
became a horse racing pioneer. So during the years when John Marshall Harlan and his uh, his white brothers were studying law, Robert Harlan was out learning to size up horses by sight. And this was a uh, horse racing um, world that was just starting to develop in Kentucky. And it was a shrewd decision on his part to become part of it because it was one of the few areas where African-Americans could compete equally with white people. So uh, a lot of the original uh, horse owners were slave owners, and they would have their enslaved uh, men be the trainers and jockeys. So even free blacks would have sort of an equal shot at, uh, uh, at, at, at success in, in horse racing. So from a very young age, Robert Harlan uh, was sort of a raffish uncle figure. He was 16 years older than John. Uh, so when John was just a little boy, Robert would be sort of coming home from the horse races with, you know, pouches full of money in this sort of swashbuckling frontier town. Um, but Robert Harlan then went on to go to the gold rush in 1849 and become wealthy, wealthy beyond all the other Harlans. Um, and then he moved to Cincinnati where he funded black businesses, many of them by, uh, owned by people who were coming off the Underground Railroad. Cincinnati was the, essentially the terminus of the Underground Railroad for many years because uh, it was the first free state. And uh, so Robert Harlan did a lot of other amazing things in his life. He went to England and spent 10 years in uh, traveling around Europe, running horse races, uh, staging races in which American horses competed with European mounts, uh, and became quite well-known in Europe. Then he returned to the United States after the Civil War and became the leading black politician in Ohio, uh, which gave him a chance to be helpful to John Marshall Harlan, who was a leading politician in next-door Kentucky. And as things evolved, both of them became leaders in the Republican Party, and they, they formed an alliance, um, which was quite unusual. <laughs> and... You know, it's it's quite a mystery to today's sensibilities that, you know, a man who was born enslaved, even though presumed to be a relative and even though given a lot of uh, prerogatives that you don't normally associate with slavery, um, would nonetheless maintain a close relationship to the family and, and be, uh, you know, a significant collaborator and helper of... Uh, you know, a white man, John Marshall Harlan, who at the time was held in suspicion by northern liberals just because he was from Kentucky, because he was from a slave-owning family. So having the support of Robert Harlan, I think, gave him significant credibility when it came to his appointment to the Supreme Court in 1877, um, which was a year when, as you know, people who remember the disputed Hayes-Tilden presidential election can say, it was a tumultuous year in which uh, there was a sort of backroom deal that was cut that gave Hayes the presidency in exchange for removing troops from the South. And one of Hayes's other promises was to appoint a Southerner to the court. But the Senate was still controlled by Northern Republicans. At that time, they were the the party of African-Americans, the party that was supportive of African-Americans. And so you had all these Northern liberals who are skeptical of any Southern nominee. So in that atmosphere, Robert Harlan, uh, leading black politician in Ohio, uh, was, was a significant source of uh, support and credibility for John Marshall Harlan, the, uh, the Kentuckian who was appointed to the Supreme Court.
Yeah, it's uh, Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> I recall that uh, that bar. You know, not personally, but reading history, uh, that bargain. And, and this, I guess, that's an irony, isn't it? That uh, John Marshall Harlan is appointed by Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, who is the president with that that bargain? Who uh, you know? There's a shifting of history here and ushering in of Jim Crow yeah. at that point. <laughs> Well, what was shifting then is the commitment of white people to supporting black rights. I mean, it was a really epic retreat. You know, this was a, a deceptively big moment in American history, because for the first 12 years after the Civil War, there were Union troops remaining in the South, uh, Southerners who did not accept the post-Civil War amendments, which guaranteed black rights, were not allowed to vote or participate in uh, in in political life. And then suddenly, in 1877, everything changed. Troops were withdrawn from the South. Uh, control was returned to the white majority in a lot of those states. Uh, those states immediately began um, taking steps to try to disenfranchise black voters uh, to start the architecture of what later became you know, Jim Crow America. Um, and it was a moment when the white political class, including in the North, sort of looked the other way. And they saw those compromises, the, the abandonment of black rights, as being, you know, the price of peace with the South. It also happened to be a time of a major, you know, industrial revolution-fueled uh, economic boom in the North. And so a lot of Northerners, you know, felt like times were good and Time for reconciliation, and you know we can't we can't keep fighting the South forever. Um, John Marshall Harlan took a very different view. Uh, he he also believed that you know you couldn't keep troops in the South forever, um, but you could enforce the law in a powerful way. You know, you could the law could sort of fill in where uh, the might of the troops uh, uh, could not <laughs> achieve peace, and. Um, it was a very different lesson than other white leaders, including people on the Supreme Court, uh, took from those years. You know, his colleagues on the Supreme Court uh, went with the times and found pretexts to abandon all of these protections that had just been enacted in the Constitution for black people, essentially to give the green light to Jim Crow in the South and segregation in the South. Harlan took the total opposite view, believing that there needed to be forceful uh, support and enforcement of black rights precisely in order to prevent a revival of civil war tensions. So you have all the white community saying, well, here, you know, we're, we're resolving tensions by essentially abandoning black people. He said, no, no, abandoning black people is going to cause tensions that are going to reverberate in this country for generations. Uh, we have to defend black people. It was a very different view, and I think history has found Harlan's view to be correct. If you just joined us, we're talking with Peter Canellis. He's an award-winning writer and former editorial page editor of Boston Globe, executive editor of Politico. He's the managing editor at Politico. And his new book, fascinating biography of Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harlan, is called The Great Dissenter. That's out and available now. And we'll have more following this brief break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Stokes Nature Center Canyon Jams, presenting David Birchfield and the Fire Guild, June 25th at 7 p.m., located at Von Baer Park in Providence. 
information at loganature.org slash canyonjams. And Silicon Slopes Magazine, a hub of Utah startups, business, and tech, contributing articles and insights from the Utah community. Information on advertising in print and digital versions at siliconslopesmagazine.com. This researcher spent years trying to stop greenhouse gases from cows. There's so much methane, so they burp and they burp and they burp. Then one day in the lab, a surprising discovery. When I first saw it, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I thought something had gone wrong. Emission control on the next reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to have with us Peter Canellis, award-winning author. Latest book is The Great Dissenter. It's a new biography of Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harlan. Uh, he was the lone dissenter on many of the famous cases uh, that ushered in, uh, helped usher in Jim Crow in the late uh, 19th century, Plessy versus Ferguson among them. And uh, his dissents came to be very influential. Thurgood Marshall said that uh, uh, these dissents were his Bible and his blueprint as he and others worked to dismantle uh, Jim Crow. Uh, we have uh, Peter Canellis with us for the rest of the hour. You can reach us with your question or comment by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Peter Canellis, uh, before we get to Plessy versus Ferguson, the other famous dissents, I want to talk a little bit more about Robert Harlan. Um, he's a great example of uh, the effect that these decisions and this turn away from white support for black rights had. Uh, Robert Harlan was, uh, you know, took full advantage of these new freedoms right after the Civil War and was prominent and rising and uh, and uh, using his talents. And uh, then I imagine that uh, these decisions and, and uh, as Jim Crow creeping in, that put up roadblocks. It, it certainly did. It's a, it's a sad story because in... In many ways, Robert Harlan was such a resourceful, optimistic person. You know, he, again, when he was a young man, slavery was in place, and he found all these ways to succeed and to find uh, something like an equal chance, you know, whether it was in the gold rush, whether it was in free Cincinnati in the time of the Underground Railroad, whether it was after the Civil War during that 12-year period when black rights were enforced, and he he became a national figure. He became the leading black politician in Ohio, but Ohio was the most important state. It was the swing state in in national politics, and the Republican Party needed black votes in Ohio to prevail. So Robert Harlan is uh, on a first-name basis with Ulysses Grant and other you know leaders. Uh, he was president. Grant was president at the time, but other leaders of the Republican Party, other national leaders. Uh, and then, as black rights were abandoned, very slowly, things started to change. It didn't, it didn't happen all at once for Robert Harlan, because Ohio was a little bit different than the states of the former Confederacy. Uh, black people retained the right to vote for a longer period of time, so there was still uh, attention given to black votes. And where Robert Harlan was a, a leader in the black community, uh, he was able to maintain some clout. But, um, but what was happening elsewhere soon began to encroach on Ohio. So 
for one thing, there became tremendous disgruntlement within the black community, you know, knowing what was happening nationally. That a lot of them turned against the Republican Party, which hurt Robert Harlan's chances. Overt racism of the type that would have been condemned in the years immediately after the Civil War uh, suddenly returned. So one of Robert Harlan's great hopes is that he had one son, Robert Jr., who he envisioned as achieving full equality to whites. And he, Robert Harlan, even though he, he always joked he only had half a day's schooling because he wasn't allowed to go to school because he was black, but, um, but he was a strong believer in education, and he felt that education would be the great equalizer. So his own son goes to college and law school and becomes a, a very erudite figure. But when his own son took his children, Robert's grandchildren, and some of their friends to a children's play at a theater in Cincinnati, they were forced to go up to the balcony. They were evicted from their orchestra seats and ended up suing the, the family theater uh, after this traumatic incident. So, uh, you know, that was a, just, a, just one example of the uh, brushes with racism that Robert Harlan faced. He had been the leader of an all-black regiment in the National Guard that in those first years after the Civil War was seen as a very positive thing. It was African-Americans sharing in the defense of the country, uh, you know, coming into the fold in some ways. Uh, once Jim Crow took hold, it was uh, a source of fear to whites because because uh, these black soldiers had access to guns. So there were confrontations in which Robert Harlan was caught in the middle, in which white leaders tried to essentially take away the weapons from black people. Um, and more and more, you could see, you know, all the ways that economically, politically, and socially, the black community became isolated. Robert Harlan's defend, uh, descendants, uh, starting with his son, Robert Jr., were all victims of it even more than he was, because they remained a very prominent, well-educated family, once segregation took hold, there was no money in the black community. So you could be a doctor or a lawyer or a successful business owner, but if your entire world is circumscribed by uh, the black community it, it, as part of a concerted plan where blacks have been denied uh, access to, to capital, access to money, access to property values, there's very little you can do, right? So the irony is that the first Robert Harlan, there were five descendants who shared his name, but the first of those five actually had a better life by most measures than the other four. And that's because of segregation. And there's this added poignancy that those Supreme Court decisions that allowed segregation to take hold, you know, here is John Marshall Harlan, believed to be his half-brother, the man who Robert Harlan for the Supreme Court, vouched for, worked towards getting him that, that job, uh, is, is issuing these dissents that aren't just, you know, legalistic challenges, but are, are uh, moral condemnations of what the Supreme Court is doing. And those dissents resonated greatly in the black community, including with Robert Harlan. <laughs> um, and I think they, they just, uh, uh, you know, the life story of Robert Harlan and the life story of John Marshall Harlan uh, attests strongly to the to the cost of segregation and and how uh, individual people can be deeply hurt when the Supreme Court gets it wrong. 
So John Marshall Harlan, appointed by Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877. Uh, you, you're right. I think he was, you know, he, he was odd. He was impressed by his fellow justices at first, and then, you know, then then he begins to dissent. Uh, tell us about those other ju- some of those other justices. Uh, I, I think they they were like each other in many ways. Uh, tell us a bit about them. Well, one of the things that they had in common is that they tended to be wealthy private lawyers. Uh, the generation of lawyer that John Marshall Harlan was, again, he lived from 1833 to 1911. So the generation of, of men that were his peers and went into the law uh, saw a transformation of the legal profession. Um, in 1833, being a lawyer meant you would, uh, you know, set up an office in your town and you would perform basic legal functions, um, you know, wills, marriages, <laughs> trusts, estates, that kind of thing. Um, and occasionally, you know, if you were a criminal lawyer, you'd be a defense lawyer or a prosecutor. Um, but starting right after the Civil War, um, the economy became nationalized. This was largely a result of the railroads taking hold. And so you would have whole industries that would uh, cut deals, essentially, with the railroad so that one trust, one monopoly, would control all of the distribution of a certain product. And uh, the special deals with the railroads would enable uh, that trust to set prices for consumers and also to set wages for workers, because there was only one place to work in those industries. So uh, the bosses had a lot of, a lot of control. They maintained that control uh, against the inevitable political attacks um, by virtue of hiring a new class of dynamic lawyer, you know, people who are sort of like super lawyers who would go before Congress, and in some cases the legislatures of states like New York and New Jersey that played a role in regulating securities, and, and fight on behalf of the, the Gilded Age economic interests. And those lawyers have become very wealthy and very famous. And often they would be appointed to the Supreme Court because you pretty much had a 35-year unbroken string of pro-business presidents who more or less believed that this uh, form of economic growth was good for the country. So they appointed the most famous lawyers who tended to be people who defended these railroads and uh, industry trusts and, and became fantastically wealthy. So... Among the things that they shared, being all Northerners except for Harlan, <laughs> was they had very little exposure to African Americans. So, yes, they had been against slavery, but they actually didn't know or understand or see the real human potential in African Americans because it wasn't part of their experience. Similarly, on the economic cases, and this was an era when you had huge amounts of immigration, you had industrialization taking place. You know, we, we, we all, those of us in the East Coast, can go to these, uh, you know, mansions that were built in the style of Versailles with Louis XIV uh, ballrooms and uh, amazing works of art and ornamentation. And, and yet we also know that, that workers in some of these factories were living, you know, five and ten men to a room because nobody could afford a room of their own on the wages that they were being paid. So you think, how did that inequality come to exist? And the answer is uh, the Supreme Court backed 
an economic theory that prevented the government from taking any action to address it. So in the 1890s, there was a political will to, to sort of take on some of these economic inequalities, starting with the Sherman Antitrust Act, which was designed to uh, give the government the power to break up some of these trusts to create more competition. Then there was an income tax imposed. You know, at that time, the federal government was funded by tariffs. But, you know, a tariff was essentially going to be putting a set amount of uh, a premium on certain basic goods. So if you're, you know, importing a bag of sugar, uh, the poor person working in the factory pays the same premium on sugar as the wealthy person in their mansion pays on sugar. So the income tax was an attempt to fund the government through a tax on more wealthy people. Um, and you started to have in state legislatures uh, labor regulations of the type that, you know, limited the number of hours, for example, that a, a, a boss could demand a worker uh, in, a, in a dangerous factory job to, to work. Um, the Supreme Court ruled against all of those things. You know, they initially ruled the Sherman Antitrust Act unconstitutional. They ruled the income tax unconstitutional for 20 years until they passed a, a constitutional amendment to, to allow the income tax again. Uh, and in this case of Lochner v. New York, they, they flatly declared that uh, legislatures could not enact labor laws. They couldn't, they couldn't legislate purely on the basis of protecting labor. So for 20 years, the Gilded Age was extended past a point when the political will of the country dictated otherwise. And the reason is the Supreme Court uh, stood as an obstacle. In all of those cases, Harlan dissented, just like he dissented in all the race cases. So if you say, you know, the legacy of that era on the Supreme Court is they opened the door to segregation, which, you know, we're still feeling the effects of and uh, had a terribly damaging effect on the country. And they also extended the Gilded Age for decades with some fairly retrograde economic decisions. <laughs> Harlan was the only person saying no to all of this. Uh, so it, it makes for an extraordinary legacy on his part. Tell us about uh, uh, maybe the most famous race case, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, um, uh, maybe the details of the case. Um, and then uh, how did the majority, uh, how do they square this with the Constitution, especially the new amendments, 14th Amendment, for, for example? Uh, they may, <laughs> the uh, the Plessy versus Ferguson was a case that involved uh, the railroads of Louisiana. And Louisiana established what they called the Separate Car Act, which was a requirement that uh, blacks and whites be separated in different cars while traveling in the transportation system of Louisiana. And the claim of the state was that this was not unequal treatment for blacks, even though the whole intent of this law was to separate blacks. But they said, okay, whites are also being separated here, so it's it's fairly equal, right? You know, this is equally applied. Um, blacks and whites are are each in a separate carriage, so where's the violation uh, for the Equal Protection Clause? Now, the majority of the Supreme Court was okay with that, and they accepted that logic. And in a rather ridiculous bit of verbiage in the majority opinion, you have uh, Justice Henry Billings Brown writing that, uh, you know, 
if there is any sort of negative association with this law, it's because black people themselves choose to put that construction on it. The law itself is perfectly neutral. Now, it's, it's a pretty audacious thing to say this law is neutral when this law was passed exclusively to keep black people out of the white person's coach. And Harlan, in his dissent, immediately called out that, you know, inconsistency. Essentially, he said, every person in the country knows the intention here was to separate black people, not to give each race a, you know, totally equal experience here. Um, but beyond that, in his dissent, he spoke to some of those national values that we were talking about, going back to John Marshall, going back to his father, and he talked about what an offense this case was to the founding principles of the United States and the principle of equality above all. And the amendments that were passed after the Civil War at the, the cost of, you know, 600,000 dead soldiers to guarantee equality in this country. And here the Supreme Court is sort of blithely denying it. And today, Harlan's uh, decision, <coughs> his uh, dissent, is regarded as a great statement of purpose in American law. It includes many memorable phrases, among them, the Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man. There is no caste here. You know, these are all memorable phrases from Harlan's dissent, which has become uh, an important document in American history. I think that people in the law, particularly people aware of the very sad arc of history that followed this time, look back at what Harlan said and understand that, that he was in touch with the, you know, the true spirit of the Constitution, with the true values of the United States, uh, at a time when his colleagues were uh, just sort of turning their back on them. And, and I think they were uh, doing it sort of out of ignorance. They really didn't understand the race situation at all. It wasn't part of their lives. Uh, I think they understood that for economic purposes, it was really important to have sort of peace with the South. I think they believed that uh, white Southerners would absolutely never uh, accept blacks on any term other than as uh, second-class citizens. And uh, they were mindful of not, uh, uh, not inflaming whites in the South, you know, not creating the conditions that had led to the Civil War. Whereas, as I said before, Harlan's view was, no, if you want to prevent the conditions that led to the Civil War, you have to enforce equality. And there was another uh, whole set of cases in which Harlan argued for equality. And that was when the United States became uh, an imperial nation. Uh, during the first decade of the 20th century, the United, after the Spanish-American War, the United States acquired uh, control of Puerto Rico, the Philippines. They had already assumed control of Hawaii. Um, but all of these places were essentially U.S. colonies, U.S. protectorates. And so the question immediately emerged, you know, well, people living in those places, do they have constitutional rights or not? And every justice sort of had a different opinion on that. <laughs> so it made for a lot of messy cases. But Harlan was by far the most consistent, and in dissent, <laughs> declaring that, that, of course, they should have constitutional rights, that 
you know, precisely because we're not uh, a kingdom, um, the Constitution is the sovereign in the United States. So if you are living in the Philippines or Puerto Rico or Hawaii and you are under control of the United States, your, you know, your sovereign is the U.S. Constitution. It's not the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Constitution. And he didn't win that one, but I think that his um, passion for those cases stems from the same roots as his defense of black rights, in that he believed that after the Civil War, the great, uh, the great sin in American history, the thing that almost brought down the American experiment, was inequality as represented by slavery. So if you want to preserve American ideals, which he deeply believed in, you have to defend equality. And you have to stand up for it when it's African-Americans, stand up for it in cases involving Native Americans, um, and also cases involving Americans living in these U.S. colonies or protectorates, however you want to describe them, the Philippines, Hawaii, Cuba, um, and uh, Puerto Rico. So <clears throat> he was a strong believer in equality. He was really the, the father of equality as a legal concept in the United States. Well, let's take another break. Uh, when we come back, our last segment with Peter Canellis, a uh, very interesting new biography of Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harlan. It's called The Great Dissenter, and we'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and the USU Lyric Repertory Company, presenting the Thanksgiving play. Four writers work to create a politically correct Thanksgiving play that is historically accurate, avoids all stereotypes, and doesn't offend anyone. Now through July 17th. Details at lyricrep.org. And Idaho National Laboratory. Digital Engineering is offering hope for accelerated deployment of advanced nuclear reactors and an unmatched level of monitoring, control, and security. More information is available at dice.inl.gov. This is Carrie Bringhurst. We've been getting together in the mornings for quite a few years now. How about we mix things up a bit, and instead of meeting early in the day, we meet up in person where the locals eat for an evening meal. UPR's benefit dinner is back. That means we can meet and greet each other at a Logan restaurant the evening of Wednesday, June 23rd. And a portion of your meal purchase will support your favorite public radio station, Utah Public Radio. Details about times and location on our website, upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams. And our guest is Peter Canellis. He is uh, author of a new book, uh, important new biography of uh, a uh, important figure in American history, uh, Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harlan. Uh, it's called The Great Dissenter. And it's out now. So, Peter Canellis, uh, before we close, just want to make sure I get this in. Um, you talk about, uh, I've seen you've talked at least in other interviews, about how Harlan's career offers lessons in the importance of personal experience in judging. And sometimes we try to pretend that, uh, you know, personal experience doesn't enter in, but obviously it does. Um, and we've talked about, you've talked about how uh, John Marshall Harlan's personal experiences uh, made him see the world differently than his fellow justices. Um, you also talk, uh, this is an interview with, uh, I think, with NPR. Um, you talk about how justices are chosen nowadays. 
and uh, so it kind of becomes cookie cutter. Uh, you're, you tend to be academics, all academics. Uh, they tend to be chosen young, so they'll serve for many years, and, and the presidents try to vet them for ideology. Um, but perhaps there's not a, a variability in experience that maybe we should have. Yeah, I agree with that, Tom. That's 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 what we're missing on the current court. Not in every case, and. You know, we live in different times also. Uh, you, you know, the lessons that Harlan learned uh, fighting in a civil war and watching his state collapse and growing up uh, alongside an enslaved person um, are not things you can easily replicate in today's era. Uh, but there is a tendency today to appoint Supreme Court justices at a, a young age because the, the presidents who appoint them want to maximize their influence on the court, keep their conservative or liberal values going for 40 years on the court is what they're thinking of. So um, people who want to serve on the Supreme Court often are, you know, aware of that ambition coming out of law school. Uh, They seek prestigious clerkships with justices. They become embraced by the legal backers of the two different parties, the Federalist Society on the right, the American Constitution Society on the left. Sometimes they'll get a a brief job in academics, uh, just sort of waiting to get appointed to the bench. They'll teach for a couple of years, and then they'll get appointed to a lower court. And that becomes a, a sort of training ground for the Supreme Court, and then be appointed around age 40 or 45, uh, to the Supreme Court with the idea that they could serve for, for four decades. Um, the problem with that trajectory is that uh, even if you acknowledge that uh, uh, you're not going to have quite as many of the life and death experiences as John, Har- John Marshall Harlan had, um, that is a, a uniquely sort of hermetically sealed set of experiences. Um, you believe that... Uh, uh, you know, the law is, is the kind of uh, subject that gets debated in faculty lounges and that your personal theories that you, you know, advanced in those discussions, uh, you know, become uh, sacred to you. Uh, it's, it's a, um, you know, it's a recipe for discord. And um, I think that when you have the kind of experiences that Harlan had, you know, where, again, where you saw war, he talked about, you know, stepping over corpses at Shiloh. You know, he saw his state falling apart in the uh, crucial moments in 1861. You know, he was literally on street corners with a bullhorn urging people to stay neutral and not join the Confederacy, knowing that if, if Kentucky went to the Confederacy, it would be a disaster for the North and for the Union. <laughs> um, you know, when you have those kind of life and death experiences and things, uh, you have a different sense of the stakes. You know, you, you understand that what the Supreme Court does matters deeply for the country. It's, it's not a debating society. It's not a faculty lounge. It's not a, uh, you know, contest between ideas. It, it's a place where real and important decisions get made that have a tremendous effect on the lives of of individuals. And Harlan deeply understood that. I'm not sure that many of today's justices, a lot of them, both on the left and right, are Harlan admirers, uh, but I'm not sure that they fully understand uh, the effect of the court on the country the way that he did. 
I was struck by, obviously, the title is The Great Dissenter, and and uh, John Marshall Harlan's life and experience on the Supreme Court is is an example of the power of dissent. He was the lone dissenter on many of these uh, decisions. I was struck by, Thurgood Marshall said that uh, he used uh, Plessy versus Ferguson and other dissents as a roadmap in the Bible, um, and you could see how, how that would be. I was struck by the power of those dissents contemporaneously, that uh, black communities, uh, I guess, maybe kept hope alive a bit to, to see that at least one justice was, was speaking to them. It, it, it really did. Um, and that's become more apparent because uh, black newspapers were not really available to scholars at all for, for 100 years. And now they've been digitized and a lot have been found. And so we understand the dialogue that was going on in the black community, even during the years of segregation. You know, when the white community was paying no attention, there was a parallel set of newspapers in the black community. And while Harlan's dissents were getting very little attention, you know, uh, the economic dissents got a lot more attention. I should say the racial dissents did not get a lot of attention among white people. Um, They were getting a ton of attention in uh, black newspapers. And, it was it was seen as almost like an emotional connection with Harlan and Harlan's values. Um, you know, he was routinely referred to as the only the only person who defends our rights, the only people person who cares about our race, uh, the only person in the white world who sees things through black people's eyes. Um, when he died, there were memorial services around the country in in fairly obscure cities that you know Harlan had never visited. Uh, black people would spontaneously come together to pray for his soul, believing that he was their one true defender. And, you know, in Washington, for example, there were like three of those services, and then a couple of weeks later they had a a combined service at uh, Washington's Metropolitan AME Church, uh, which was the largest church, uh, I think, then and still now, uh, in in the black community in Washington, uh, where some of Harlan's dissents, like the Plessy v. Ferguson dissent, was read, were read aloud. And, you know, you imagine some of the children who were there in the audience, you know. This was an important statement, that there was a white justice who understood what was going on in the black community and understood the cost of these decisions. And Thurgood Marshall, when he started studying the law about 20 or 30 years after Harlan's death, also discovered in you know these dissents and found inspiration in them and others other civil rights attorneys like Constance Baker Motley who was one of uh, Thurgood Marshall's lieutenants uh, she also was deeply inspired by by what Harlan was saying so when these civil rights attorneys had to go around the south to persuade individuals to bring cases uh, designed to bring down segregation you know for example by uh, trying to get admitted to a, a public school that was deemed to be all white, um, those, there were real stakes in those decisions, right? So the, the plaintiffs knew that the Ku Klux Klan was watching. <laughs> they knew that they were taking on this monolithic white community in their eyes. And yet, here was a justice, Harlan, uh, who had seen things entirely differently. So it, it sort of represented a sense of hope that the white community could be persuaded. You know, if, if there's a big difference between one and none, you know, Harlan, Harlan was persuaded. If he was persuaded and, you know, people were prepared to look at things differently in a more modern era, 
um, others could be persuaded. And, and so I think that his, his dissents played a large role in, uh, in helping to inspire the, uh, the 20th century civil rights movement. I mean, it's not like the civil rights movement would not have happened without him, but it may have happened differently. There may have been less faith in the system, less patience, less willingness to go through the court system. Um, so, so he played a, he played a significant role. And as Thurgood Marshall and Congress Baker Motley and others said, you know, <clears throat> they used his words from his dissents in their briefs to challenge segregation. So, so Harlan was right there in the briefs, in the discussions of his cases, uh, leading up to and including, um, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, which finally, uh, overturned segregation. Well, it's a fascinating story, important uh, parallels to today. Uh, we're out of time here. Our discussion with Peter Canellis, award-winning author and managing editor at Politico. His uh, new biography of Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harlan is called The Great Dissenter. That's out and available now. Peter Canellis, thank you so much. Appreciate you spending the hour with us. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it, too. It's a great subject to talk about and, uh, you know, important for people, I think, uh, in in understanding legal history and, you know, how we got to where we are today. Certainly. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, featuring community concerts in Logan's Tabernacle Monday to Friday, and celebrating 53 years at the Kane Lyric Theater and 28 years at Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. More information available online at explorelogan.com.